one of the things as I've uh, thought about this week uh, and the ongoing changes that it's bringing to our world is that uh, this time has revealed some cracks in my life. I'm, I'm only too aware. Earthquakes reveal cracks in buildings, right? And this is in our world something of an earthquake. And I've noted how it has, in God's mercy, revealed to me some areas that I thought I was fine in, but where my trust in God was in a place where it clearly was so shaken that my trust had been rooted in something else. So let's not waste this time because there will be a time when things will reach a new normal, where things will change again. And this is an awful time in many respects for the health of many people who are suffering um, with the coronavirus and and those who are at risk, and and we pray for them. But because it's changed our way of life right now, we let's take the opportunity. And if you know that you have seen the fear, and and maybe uh, you've noticed in your own life the uh, uh, anger rise up or things, you know, if you've never known the Lord Jesus for salvation, this is a time where this can draw you to himself. If you do know him, but maybe like me, I felt like there were idols in my life of security and things that were shaken away, that are being shaken away, let's have those distract, as the distractions of our life are rooted out. The fruit of the Holy Spirit grows in soil of challenge. You'll never know if you have the peace of the Lord unless you're in a time where there's no peace, because the peace of the Lord comes uncaused by peace in the world. It's fine to be peaceful when everything is perfect, but the peace of the Lord is to come when there's tremendous difficulty in life. So let's let's use this time, and I I just wanted to share with you that um, my prayer is, is that we would continue to use this time to see God move. As we've used our... uh, a couple of weeks ago, now three weeks ago, I planted my little plant, put a seed in the ground, if you were here and remember, because we're looking at the book of Second Peter. And in Second Peter chapter 1, Peter says that he's writing this book to establish us, and the word sterizo for establish is this idea of a trellis, the idea of building to something firm, something true, an objective truth. Truth matters. For Peter, it was rooted in his eyewitnessing of Jesus' resurrection and of Jesus revealing himself in glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. So what I've noticed in this as it's come up is that, you know, this is, I, I need now a bigger trellis. I'm, I'm, it's, the little pea plant is growing. It's going to, this, by next week, I'm going to have to put an addition on here. I've also noticed something interesting. It's got these little tentacles that are, uh, three tentacles that are keeping it there, when I took it out of the light, we had some darker days and it ended up kind of in a dark place, they began to release that it was when they were in the light that they were uh, wrapping themselves around. So I'll push this metaphor a little beyond its boundaries, but you know, as we stay in the light of God's truth and the light of God's word, we'll find ourselves anchoring. Because I'll tell you, without this, this little plant would be over. And I feel like in our world, those who have no anchoring in truth the world is shaking. And when the world is shaking and you've got nothing to hold on to, it's a fearful thing. So our truth is not rooted in this world, though, and that's the difficult to understand and conceive of, but our truth is rooted in something beyond this world, in the God who is sovereign and knows this world. So 
We'll keep, uh, keep looking at our metaphor here as we um, move through Second uh, Peter. So keep fixing yourself to the truth. Today, we're going to, if you've got your Bible, I want you to gonna put your finger in two different spots. Second Peter chapter 2, we're going to be looking at today. And also, we're going to introduce Jude. I would say chapter 1, but Jude only has one chapter. So if you've got something, you flip back and forth between Second Peter chapter 2 and Jude chapter 1. Because we want to anchor ourselves in truth... Peter says you've got to recognize and understand those who are trying to teach you and lead you astray. So, the, uh, the thing that I found, I found interesting in this, and I, I really didn't realize this, is how close Peter and Jude either um, knew each other in shared communication, used a common source because their language is so similar, either one had the other's letter and said, wow, that's a great, that's exactly what I want to say, and used it, or they had somehow had a joint point, because you'll see, we're going to go back and forth in some of these scriptures, and you'll see how these two books are writing about the same issue, which is there are people out there who for their own purposes are claiming to be Christians and are uh, teaching and manipulating people for their own ends, and they're teaching things that are false, uh, Peter was, I mean, he was exercised about this, and by that I mean he was angry. He was in full fury mode, as is Jude. Now, Jude, uh, the way uh, Jude presents himself, most people feel like Jude was a, uh, a brother, um, not a full brother, obviously, because they had different fathers, but, uh, but that Mary was the mother of Jude as well as Jesus, and uh, so most people feel like he being an early church leader. Um, so again, someone who probably didn't believe uh, that Jesus was the Christ during his lifetime, very possibly, and then after Jesus' death and resurrection came to not only believe in him but be a leader in that. So we've got Peter, his close follower, leader among the uh, apostles, and then Jude. So what we talked about last week was that uh, the, the first thing these teachers said was kind of, um, boy, the apostles don't know what they're talking about. And Peter's response is, I saw it. You can't tell me I didn't see this. I was an eyewitness to this. So he um, comes out very strongly because he knows what he knows what he knows. So the second thing they began to attack, and we'll get to this more in chapter 3 next week, is that he attacks the fact that there'll ever be a day of reckoning, there'll ever be a day of the Lord, that God will ever come as a lion setting things right. Yes, he came as a lamb to forgive our sins, crucial, but that's it. And hey, we've always said he'll come again, but he's probably not coming again. And if there was no day of reckoning, then you can kind of do what you want under the guise of the freedom in Christ. You could abuse the idea of, hey, if I sin, God will forgive me, so no big deal. So Peter comes against that and says, look, I saw him on the Mount of Transfiguration. I saw him with Moses and with Elijah, and we were there in the presence of the one who's coming again. So you can't tell me that that's not true, and he begins to attack these teachers. So we pick it up now in chapter 2. And so, here's what the false teachers were saying, and I'm going to read now. This is the scripture. Uh, if you've got your Bible, 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. But false prophets also arose among the people, 
just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. So we left off in chapter 1 where Peter says the uh, idea of Scripture is not open to interpretation. Now, by that we don't mean that you don't have to look at and determine how to interpret the Scripture in terms of applying it to our lives. We all must do that. What you can't do is say, well, I think that this prophet had his own motive that Samuel or Isaiah or whoever, they just said what they wanted. It was a hu- it's just a human thing. It's just a human book. Peter says, no. God got His Word out through human vehicles. Human vehicles, with all their idiosyncrasies, with all their faults and sins, God still got His inerrant, perfect Word out to them. And so, in that way, it's not a matter of your own interpretation of saying, well, I'm going to cut out, I don't like that verse in the Bible, so I'm going to cut that one out. But I'll keep that one because I like that. You can't do that. It was men who spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, but not everyone. So that's where he says in verse 2, false prophets arose among them, among those people. Uh, Old Testament's clear that there were people who prophesied falsely. And he says, just as there's false teachers among you. Now, what were the things that the false teachers were saying? Number one, even denying the master who bought them. That's 2 Peter 2, verse 1. And then if you've got your Bible, flip over to Jude Verse 4, it's always odd not to say the chapter in front of it, but Jude, verse 4, will say, Certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. There we have the same language. So the first thing, they deny Jesus. They deny the uniqueness of Jesus Christ as the only begotten Son of God, the only way to salvation. So that's the first thing they do. They follow their sensuality. We've heard that. We just read that in Jude. Again, same verse in Jude. Uh, also, uh, in 2 Peter, go to 2 Peter 2.2. 2 says many will follow their sensuality so that the teachers were coming from the sensuality as trusting in, believing in, loving, living for the touch, feel, the things we taste and see with our human, and that's the end of it, that there isn't a sense of what is beyond sensuality dealing with the senses, and particularly that word deals with sexual things, that these guys were trying to um, misuse people sexually. And so they were uh, seducing people. Let's look at Second Peter, uh, again, uh, chapter two, verse 14. Paul says it, uh, Peter, sorry, says it very specifically. "They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin, they entice unsteady souls." It's happening then. Unfortunately, it sometimes happens now. This is the second thing that he condemns them for. And finally, uh, the other big thing we have in this is uh, in verse two, verse th- in chapter two of Second Peter, verse three, as well as Jude, 
verse 4, I'm sorry, Jude verse 11, is in their greed, they exploit people. So, sex and money. Things haven't changed that much, unfortunately. Let's read 2 Peter 2, verse 2 again. Um, um, in verse 3, sorry, 2 Peter 2, 3, and in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. 2 Peter 2, also verse 14, uh, or 15, forsaking the right way, they've gone astray. They followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing. Balaam, who was paid uh, to prophesy against the people of God. Uh, Jude, verse 11, same thing. It says, Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain, abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. Cain, Balaam, and Korah all were rebellious against God's word and all did it for personal gain. So these are the things that, um, that Peter is, is specifically condemning these teachers for. Then he moves into explaining in uh, other ways in which you can see how God does bring about a day of reckoning. So I'll quickly move through this. But in uh, 2 Peter 2, verse 4, as well as Jude, verse 6, 1 Peter 2, 4 and Jude 6. I know I'm flipping back and forth, but I want you to see how closely these are related. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment. So he didn't spare those angels, and then we'll look at Jude 6, uh, and, right, Jude 6, and he says, um, the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains. So there's reckoning for the angels. Now, what's this referring to? Got to take a second and explain this because it's kind of a weird one. In Genesis chapter 6, there's this sort of odd story that begins it about how angels had inappropriate relations with uh, the daughters of men. And it's not exactly clear what he's referring to. And so people have said, well, this is angelic beings who were rebellious angels, and they did wrong. Some people feel it was those who had almost godlike authority, but humans. There's been a lot of interpretations of this. There is a book written called First Enoch, which is not in the Bible. It's not what we call canonical. It means the early church fathers did not see it meeting the criteria of God's inerrant word. But it was a very popular book. There were lots of popular, just like we have books now that people read and, you know, Purpose Driven Life or whatever, that people read and they comment on and they talk about. They had lots of books, and the genre of that book was as a prophecy, and it would have been well-known among uh, Peter and Jude, and they both refer to Enoch's interpretation of Genesis 6. So the point of it is not whether Enoch is... Scripture, because it's, it's not considered Scripture, but the point is, is that God is going to make a reckoning for those who rebel against Him. That's the point. And so they draw the first example from Genesis 6 through Enoch's interpretation. Peter then says, look, the flood, God rescued Noah, but He, he didn't spare those who rebelled against Him. That's 2 Peter 2.5. Jude refers to the Exodus, that those who are under the blood of the Lamb, 
in the doorway were spared those who weren't, weren't. He says, God knows how to make reckoning. That's Jude 5. Then in 2 Peter 2.6 and in Jude 7, he refers to Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, in, uh, I'll read particularly the Jude uh, commentary. They both say that. But he, again, they're dealing with men who are, assuming they're all men, who are false teachers, who are trying to have adultery with and inappropriate sexual relationships with. And so he says, you're going to be judged. He says, look at Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, verse 7 of Jude. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire because it was homosexual desire, served as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So he says there is a reckoning for people who decide, well, the the sex thing is not really under God's uh, purview. God says, no, it's all under that, that there is a biblical sexual ethic of sex within marriage, fidelity in marriage, outside of marriage, whether it's heterosexual or homosexual, it's considered sin. And he says, just, uh, these people are trying to lead you astray and tell you that's, that's not right. It is. That's what God does. Not to keep us from something good, but he says to give us something good, God's best. Finally, he, he takes the example of Balaam that we looked at, 2 Peter 2, 15 and 16, and Jude 11, and then Cain and Korah. All these guys were greedy. They were lining their own pockets with spirituality. They were saying, well, God, you know, it's fine to dip into the till to embezzle money, to do whatever for, for God's purpose. And he says, it was wrong then, it's wrong now, and God will rectify it. He will make it right. And then in, in 2 Peter 2, 9, he, he sort of gets to what, what's one of the hearts of the book. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Because sometimes it seems like, well, everybody gets the good or everybody gets the bad, and there's no distinction, people who do wrong and right. And Peter's saying, no, God knows how to save Noah, and, and his children is a metaphor for those who were under the authority and protection of God. God knows how to protect those who are under the blood of the Lamb. God knows and sees your righteousness is not wasted. We who are trying to walk in purity, we stumble and fall, absolutely, but there's forgiveness as we fall under the blood. But those who say there is no God, He's not going to see, and those who teach people to say, you can kind of do whatever you want, You can ignore what the Bible says. He says they're going to be condemned. God knows how to rescue. But we've got to, as it says in um, in Jude 20, Jude 20 through 23, you, beloved, build yourself up in your most holy faith and pray in the Holy Spirit, keeping yourselves in the love of God. So he says this is how we're going to keep us from doing that. So, he then characterizes these false teachers, and we've, I've mentioned this, but he, you know, they're manipulative. Let me, let me say some practical things here about false teachers and false teaching, because it's hard. Because we, you know, we all want to name names. Well, is this guy a false teacher? Is this guy? And I, I hesitate to do that, for, and I'll tell you why, for a variety of reasons. Because as soon as you name one, there's five others that pop up that you haven't named, and then whatever. But they manipulate people for their, their own purposes. 
They're bold and willful. It talks about in 2 Peter 2.10. They're, they're often loud. They're, they're self-assured. They're gifted. So they're gifted? Yeah, usually these people are really gifted. They can make a falseness sound so good and true and right. And, you know, the Bible talks about how like an angel of light, Matthew 24, 24, is that many will be deceived, even possibly the elect. Even if the elect could be deceived, they're so good at what they say. And if you haven't yet, you will hear people who will say things that are biblically wrong, but they make it sound so convincingly right. Peter says, right before he's going to die, remember, Peter is facing his own death, and he says, I don't want you to be deceived. Jude 16, Jude, chapter, Jude verse 16 says they're loudmouth boasters. Same kind of language. They're usually very self-assured. False teachers normally don't say, I could be wrong. When you hear people teach and they say, this is what I've been taught, or, or this is what I've heard from God and I'm not wrong, I couldn't possibly be wrong, please be careful. I've tried to say this all the time, is that I hope most of what I say is, is right, but gosh, I know how wrong I can be. Finally, he says there's no substance to them. They're all blather, and it can be so convincing blather, but in 2 Peter 2.17 and in Jude verse 8, talks about how these metaphors that they're uh, given are, are really interesting. He says they're waterless springs. What? It kind of looks like water. They're springs, but they're not real water. I don't know what they are, but he says they're mist driven by a storm. They're ethereal. The gloom of utter darkness has been reserved for them. Look at what it says in Jude verse 8. It says, in all manner these people relying on their dreams. See, they're not relying on the Scripture. They're not relying on the eyewitness account. They're relying on what they learned in a dream, what they've done. They defile the flesh. They reject authority. So this is, the, um, this is what we learn about these teachers. So let me, again, bring home some lessons I've learned walking with the Lord for uh, 45 years and seeing lots of great teachers, lots of false teachers, and most of us doing our best and saying some stupid things along the way. That's where I've been. This, first of all, is specifically for false teachers claiming to be Christians. We're not dealing with people who are presenting other worldviews and don't at all claim to be Christians. So this is for people who say, I'm a Christian, I'm a believer, I'm inside the camp, I'm inside the tent, and then they're teaching stuff. So this is what we're dealing with. If you Google the best teacher, I'm talking about somebody famous, not me, but if you Google somebody famous who you think is just the most balanced Bible teacher ever, whoever your favorite is, if you put their name into a Google search with false teacher, you will come up with hit after hit of how, and I won't name anybody because I don't, you know, whatever, but how this person is a false teacher. People throw the false teacher down card because they've said something either in a sermon in 1987 somewhere, they said that, you know, they quoted a psychologist, and they'll say, psychology is, 
or their pet issue that this writer says is real Christians teach, and it's a negotiable. It's, it's what the EPC would call a non-essential to the faith. But they don't line up with my view, false teacher. Be wary. You've got to look. The, the, Second Peter and Jude would counsel us to look more. That says more about the people posting than the people who are teaching. Every teacher has said things that aren't true. Every human teacher. We have all said things that either by mistake of the tongue or just when I was younger, I said some things, and I just, you know, God has shaped me. This is why humility in teachers is so important. Bible teachers used to say, look, I'm doing the best I can and open to correction and accountability. This is what these teachers did not have. They weren't open to people with different viewpoints, sitting them down and saying, did you really mean that? Could you clarify for me? And not being threatened by that. Third thing, so the first one is this is for people inside the tent. This is, don't, let's not throw the false teacher thing down too early, just giving some grace. Motivation, knowing the, knowing the teacher's motivation helps discernment. And this is where in our day and age it's difficult because I don't know most of the people, a lot of people I listen to. I, I, I hope you know, they are, but this is why the church is so important if you, you need to know, we need to know each other, and not just me, but anybody who's teaching. If I know, if you know my life, and I know your life, then I can hear your teaching because I know you're modeling it and you're living it. So be careful if you know nothing about the personal life. I'm not saying you couldn't listen to them. They're great teachers out there, but just be aware of that, that Peter and Jude say it's important that you know their character and their motivation. The truth of God's Word should be handled with fear. I, and I mean fear in a sense, fear, like it is, a, it is a fearful thing to sit there and try to present week after week, this is what God says. Because I know I stand under stricter judgment and everyone who teaches does and we ought to have that mindset. I want to preach with boldness, but I want to preach with some, some humility and every good preacher and teacher should do that. Let's just end with, um, I want to end with a couple of the specifics in our day. And then a couple of red flags, and we'll close. The, uh, in our day, talks about Jesus' uniqueness. We talked about the denying the master. In our day, entire denominations do no longer believe that Jesus Christ is unique, is the only way to heaven. There are many paths to heaven. That's a false teaching, and it was condemned then, and it should be condemned now. As Christians, our uniqueness is in Christ. It doesn't make us arrogantly right. It makes us hopefully incredibly grateful and wanting to share that. Second thing is he was after those who were uh, teaching incorrectly in sexual matters. Uh, that's rampant in the church now where Christians will come in and say, well, I've, I've learned what the church never knew before, which is that either uh, marriage is, is open to whatever interpretation we have, um, sex outside marriage, maybe under certain circumstances is fine, homosexuality is fine, uh, the Bible could, cannot affirm that, and it's considered a heresy and a false teaching, and there's a lot out there. This is the tip of the spear in our generation, uh, in our day, gender and sexuality, and we just need to be crystal clear. We love and are welcoming to those who struggle with same-sex attractions, but 
we don't do you a service by affirming what the Bible calls sin. We call you with, I know it's a great sacrifice, but we call every believer to purity uh, in their sexual life and uh, within marriage, fidelity, and uh, there is healing and there's hope and there's a welcome for that. There's not uh, no more condemnation than any of us are condemned for our sin, but we don't do a, a service. We do what these false teachers were doing by promising that you can do whatever you want uh, in, in any arena, whether it's pornography or whatever, uh, and you're fine. God doesn't care. It's freedom in Christ. It says that's, that's destruction, not because God hates you, but because God loves you. And so please know we, we love you. We love um, the... Uh, for those who fight with sexual brokenness, we want to walk beside you in that, but we can't affirm it because the Bible doesn't. Finally, in greed, we have to watch our money. One of the reasons we want to make our church finances accountable, uh, we want to be open book, is that it is so easy. Follow the money is a phrase for a reason in so many arenas of life, and we don't want to see it poison the church. Um, so, or... In, in our attitude toward money, that we're not being willing to tithe, that we're not being willing to give generously at a time like this, that we hold on to our money and somehow we think as either teachers or as, as Christians, we can kind of, ha- our money is ours. And again, the Bible would say our money is to be used for the glory of God, for His good. And we just, we, you know, these are the things that stumbled, made them stumble, and they make us stumble. All right. Red flags, as you're listening to anyone teach the Bible, here are just, I, I wrote down six red flags that I've learned uh, over time. If anyone says, God's told me something that's some new truth that hasn't been found in thousands of years, red flag. If someone says, I got the truth, then, you know, whatever, it's just a red flag. If truth ever moves to align with culture, it's a red flag. Not that we don't adapt to culture. There are certain things that sin has sometimes been culturally embedded. Think of slavery in this country. Sometimes people justified slavery by Scripture. It's wrong. So it's not that sometimes culture doesn't push us toward righteousness. But be careful when we say, well, for years I was walking in this way, the Bible seemed to affirm, but now culture pushes me that way. And so I found in the Bible now that it affirms what I want to believe, and just be really careful. Three, if anybody says, I have uh, my way of interpreting something is the corner on the truth, particularly in areas where good-willed Orthodox Christians disagree, if you say, my way is the only way to see it, be careful. Be careful, please. Uh, That's a type of the Gnostic heresy of the second century. I have special revelation from God that tells me my way is the right way, the only way. These are important issues. We should talk about them. We should come, but just be careful for people who say there's only one view, uh, my view, and I hammer on that view over and over again. Um, and this is so important. Please don't be swayed by giftedness, human authority that someone seems so authoritative, and even someone who can do signs and wonders. Some people, uh, Matthew 24, 24, Jesus says, to people who are uh, looking at you know, what's going to happen in the end times, what's going to happen when people are panicking. And Jesus says they're going to look for people who are great teachers, false Christs, 
For false Christs and false prophets, teachers, will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. I've told you beforehand, careful, don't look at giftedness. Well, he's just a great preacher. He's really on my level, whatever. It's the message as well as the messenger. Character matters. Character matters. Last thing I've learned, and this is really more recently that I've learned this, is if people are appealing to anything but the truth of Scripture, people are appealing to only to justice, only to love. The gospel is not simply that God loves you. That's an incomplete gospel. The gospel is that we were completely separated from God after He made things right. We got things wrong. And he's drawing us back to himself by the life and death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. People who focus on things other than Jesus and the gospel and appeal to things other than Scripture and the truth laid out in that, red flag, red flag. So why don't I name names? Maybe I should just, who I think are false, somebody's joking with me. Are you going to name who you think the false teachers are? No, I'm not. I'll give you their initials. No. It's, well, yeah, it's, it's not the point because there's, next week there'll be a new one. So let's have grace where we can, but don't be led astray. Don't be led astray. Many will come saying, this is the way, that is the way. Let's, let's hang on. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, we are so grateful and so thankful that you're faithful to us. And Lord, in a time like this where life has been thrown and we've been upended, think, well, why spend a half hour looking at false teachers and Peter and Jude? Lord, because we need to anchor to your word. And there will be people even this week who make claims in the, names of Christ, in the name of Christ that are false, that aren't true. And people will be disappointed because it doesn't come about. And they'll say, well, that's what God said. That, that, that teacher, preacher said that's what God would do, this or that. Why didn't it? Lord, we don't want to be found like that. We want to see you, God with us, Emmanuel, God with us. Walking with us, teaching us. Lord, give us the courage and humility to continue to learn to continue to see you. Lord, there are wolves out there. Lord, we don't want to be throwing people to the sheep. So, Father, help us to speak the truth boldly and with love, welcoming all but calling all to repentance because that's your good news is that we can be with you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.